Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 175, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. Now, just before we start this week's show, I do have to pre-warn you, I have eaten an entire pack of refreshers before we started today. That's really weird, because I've just had a refresher as well. No way. When was the last time you had a pack of refreshers? A long time yeah. ago, and I had one today. <laughs> it, it was a weird, this pa- isn't powdery kind of sweet. Yeah. I've literally just got home from work. I bought them yesterday, didn't have it, scuffed it, and then got in the car and came straight here. That's so bizarre. That's me and Joe bouncing off the walls then for the next hour. <laughs> is, is there a sale on in your world? I don't know. Mine was a super sour apple bag, so I was just like, yeah, have that. I was leaving the house here and I saw it on the side, and my missus must have left it there, so I thought, oh, little energy boost before the podcast. So there you go, I'll try and slow down and not talk too quickly today. Now, we have got an amazing podcast lined up for you this week. Not only will we run through... All the retro gaming stories have been making the headlines this week as well. New games announced for the Mega Drive Mini and a weird little console with a hand crank control on that's been making the headlines everywhere this week. And we have a brilliant guest. Now, this week on the podcast, a couple of friends of ours are going to be joining us. Yeah, so we've got the Guru Meditation and they're, they're a team, basically. Bill Winters and Anthony Becker. And they're awesome. They've, they've been running an Amiga group since 1988, and it's still running today. They don't look old enough. No, and, <laughs> and Bill actually started his video work on the Amiga, so it's going to be a bit of a special today. And now he's got to the level that he films all the presidents. So basically, he's filmed most of the presidents of modern ages. Every time I speak to Bill, he's away filming for like massive international companies. Oh, TV Just, adverts. Yeah. You know all those old Spice adverts in America? He did quite a few of them. So. Yeah, so very, very talented. And also he does one of the videos I love that he did on his YouTube channel, which um, I'll link to in our show notes, was that one way he had that, that artist who was a, an old lady who'd been using an Amiga 1000 since the 80s? And yeah, yeah. For art, it's There's like... loads of that stuff that we can cover. So loads of different areas. We're going to be talking more about the hardware side of Amiga rather than the gaming here, kind of the, the creativity and production. Yeah, and also his, he streams a lot on Twitch as well, doesn't he? Does oh, a live yeah, he's, a, he's a big streamer. So we'll be joined by the Guru Meditation in around 20 minutes on the Retro Hour podcast. Now, last week on the show, you know, we were all reminiscing about the, the game shops that we went to. Mm-hmm. back in the day. We kind of put it out there. We said, you know, where did you go to buy your games as a kid um, and what became of your retro gaming shop? We had loads of replies. It seems that this actually, you know, did kind of push people's buttons. So let's, I think everyone has memories of it, don't they? Let's hear them. So I'm interested. I've got a few here. I picked out just a few. The first one is from uh, Jonathan Adnett. And he said, living in Sheffield in the early 80s, my go-to place every Saturday was a place called Just Micro, the shop below Gremlin. A tiny shop, but always ran with kids playing on the display computers. Anytime you'd walk in, and a rep from US Gold was often there showing off coming releases, I saw Commodore 64 Outrun and 720 Degrees for the first time in that shop. Many fond memories. Last time I passed it, it was a carpet shop. <laughs> that sounds like a hell of a cool shop. That seems to be the theme. What are they now? <laughs> yeah, but you're right. I mean, imagine that. Like, you couldn't imagine going to a game shop now on the major publisher being in there go, hey, guys, these are the new games that no, we've got not this at week. All. Yeah, we've got Squaresoft upstairs. Yeah. <laughs> now you just walk in, you've got Dave with the velvet rope charging a fiver for the headset. Yeah. You want the VR headset. <laughs> and we got one from Simon Boggy Burton. He used to go to Silica Shop in Sidcup. He spent every afternoon in there after school in the 80s, even having lock-ins when new games were delivered. He remembers four new Intellivision games being delivered at around 8.30pm one night. And his folks used to phone and tell the, the shop owner when his team was ready. So you go home. But... <laughs> That's amazing. You know who Simon is? No. Um, when we go to Play Expo. He's the guy that runs all the arcades. Oh, Simon, yes, of course. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know his full name. I know Simon. Yeah, you probably know him as Boggy. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. 
Uh, Carl Bubsy said Games World in Hammersmith in London used to go once a week with my pocket money to buy new Commodore 64 games, bought Robocop and Defenders of the Earth. The latter been absolute rubbish. Um, he said it's now long gone. I think it's a bakery now, he said. <laughs> and last one, Paul Henderson said it was a computer store in Doncaster back in the 80s. Uh, loads of Amstrad CPC games from there as well. Sometimes went to Rotherham to Crazy Joe's and games were really cheap. Had a really good Amiga PD selection in there as well, and it's now CX apparently. So, oh okay, it is good so to get stories of where uh, where people went to, you know, get games and stuff back in the day before we all got them on Steam or Xbox Live and stuff. So. And that's what Joe's shop would be called, Crazy Joe's. Crazy yeah. Joe's. <laughs> I, straight away, I was like, oh yeah, that would be mine. <laughs> <laughs> was that that little click and you register in the uh, the website yeah. domain in the background there? <laughs> so if you've got any more of those, I mean, the question we're asking is, where did you go to buy your retro games? What was the shop like? Tell us a bit about your experience, and if you know what it is today. Um, you can drop us an email, show at theretrohour.com or comment on our Facebook page. Now, before we get into our interview this week, um, just a quick shout to the people who keep this podcast going week in, week out, because, you know, the Retro Hour podcast, it's a weekly show. We're into our fourth year of doing this podcast now, which is crazy. And hands up, honestly, we would not be doing the show if we didn't have your support, because, you know, we couldn't afford to pay for this out of our own pocket for this long. So any donation that we get into the show really helps and all goes back into the running of it. And you can make a donation of any amount via PayPal. You'll find the link on our website at theretrohour.com. And for doing that, you will find your place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame and get a mention on a future episode. Just like this week... Krista Gordon. Benjamin Leland. S. Solutions. And Frank Elvin from Tolt. Who all made donations into the running of the show, and you can do the same at theretrohour.com. And let's just give a quick shout to another big supporter of the podcast as well, The Economist. Now, The Economist have been massive supporters of the Retro Hour, and we love them as well because, I mean, it's a publication that's been going here in Britain for over 170 years. That's nearly two centuries that they've been delivering trustworthy intelligence that helps people like us choose where we stand on issues that matter most. Now, as well as covering, you know, the important stuff, economics, finance, politics, business, they also cover stuff like technology, the arts, and video games as well. Now, you're reading something really interesting about this uh, change that's happening in casinos. Yeah, yeah. So we, we've we had a few guests that have actually talked about how they've originally started on fruit machines yeah. and then that kind of went into arcades, uh, sharing a lot of the same technology. What they're saying at the moment, in the casinos, you know, people sit there with their two peas or the old ladies and they keep... Or, put- or my wife when we go, yeah. <laughs> or they keep putting it in Las Vegas. Well, they're saying the average age of the kind of casino slot user is 58 wow so they're going to lose them soon and lose some of their <laughs> soon yeah. soon forever the optimist <laughs> <laughs> and, and lose some of their profits so what they're saying is they want to add skill stuff to them to, to make it more of a kind of a skill game now I've seen in the UK where it's gone completely different yeah. and they've added these fixed odds betting terminals and those things are scary I walked past quite a poor area and there was one guy, and he was a builder, and he got his whole wages, and it was probably about six, seven grand, hmm. and he just put it on the machine, and everyone was gathered around no and just way. lost it in, like, five minutes. Wow. And that was really, really scary. So, I think mean, there's two ways you can go with this. You can add skill, or you can add complete risk. That's <laughs> <laughs> the thing. I mean, I've never found fruit machines that interesting, really. It's, it's like it's, it's, I know it's, it's a chance game, isn't it, really? Mm, yeah. But if you're putting skill in there as well, I guess you're going to actually stay in the machines longer, which might keep people in the casino longer yeah, as well. Yeah, I've, I've never seen, myself, never had the appeal, growing up around Blackpool and stuff as yeah. well. 
really exposed to it, but I just never got into free well, machines. It's, it's a whole industry in America, isn't it? They yeah. pump, yeah. pump like fresh air in there to keep you kind of entertained or, and happy. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. When I was in Vegas, they were handing us free shots of Sambuca to, uh, you know, loosen up our pockets <laughs> a little bit, I think. So, I mean, those are the kind of things you can read about in The Economist as well. Some really interesting in-depth articles that will really teach you stuff that you never realised and didn't know before. Now, we'd like to give you a free copy of The Economist through your door. Now, if you do this, not only will will you be really helping out the podcast as well, but also you'll get to check out The Economist for free. So if you'd like a free print copy and you live in the UK, all you have to do is text the word retro and send it to 78070. So grab your phone right now. That's all you've got to do. Text retro and send that to 78070 and get your free print copy of The Economist, the smart guide to the forces changing your world. Now, it's fair to say around the table here, we all, we all enjoy handheld gaming. I've got a Switch, you have as well? I'm fond of it. I don't yeah. have a Switch, actually. Oh, you got but, links. If, if that's my 30th <laughs> birthday present, no, Dan. <laughs> just giving it away, yeah. going to be so disappointed. But I do have a Links. I do have several DSs, yeah. many Game Boys, many Game Boy Advances as well. You've got a Switch. Game Gear. Uh, my fiancé's got a Switch. Yeah, yeah I nicked that, yeah. <laughs> Is there one thing, though, you know when you're playing your handhelds, do you ever think, oh, I wish it had a hand crank on it? Every time. You know, I'm sat there playing Resident Evil on the DS, and I'm like, I just need to feel this crank. I just need to get in the zone. <laughs> well, this is a new console, a handheld console that looks a little bit like uh, a bit of a Game Boy kind of ripoff. This is called the Playdate. That is a weird name for a console, <laughs> isn't it? The Playdate. I always thought the PlayStation was a weird thing. It sounded like some kind of masturbation aid. It- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we might so- have to cut that out. <laughs> nice. <Yeah. laughs> well, I don't even want to know what visions of Playdate brings for you, Ravi. Um, but, I mean, they've the unveiled this handheld system now, and they're aiming to break the rules of most games consoles. Now, if you look at it, I mean, there is a little video that they've posted on Twitter, and, yeah, it does look a bit like a, a yellow Game Boy. Interestingly, it has a black and white screen. So, I mean, it, it's not monochrome. It's literally black and white. Well, there were there were a few games with those hand cranks. Do you remember the uh, Sega Bass Fishing one? On, oh, yeah, <laughs> on, the on the Dreamcast. There were yeah. quite a few. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's the vibe they've got. Like, obviously, they're going for, like, you know, you're cranking it and you're moving your little guy along. Yeah. But, it's such a novelty. Surely it's not going to take off. Do you know what well, I mean? Well, it's saying here it's going to be $149. Yeah. And what? It, it, it's black and white as well, and they're going to do a kind of limited version of it. I. This is the kind of thing, like, when, like, a relative's like, I've got you a really good birthday yeah. present. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, thanks, knowing, like, they've spent so much money on it and you're just going to play it once. It's, it, it's quite a <laughs> successful publisher, though. They're, the guys who did Firebox. Yeah. So maybe there might be some integration with a game, like, if you just crank, you get extra stuff on your PC. <laughs> I don't know. But this one game they're yeah, showing on, awards, on their so. tweet, it's called Crankin's Time Travel Adventure. And looking at it, I mean, there is a D-pad on there and there are, you know, a couple of action buttons too. But they're kind of moving the main character along with the crank with on the, the crank, side. Yeah. Kind of reminds me a bit of like those all kind of mechanical games in a way. It's got a bit of a kind of an Etch-a-Sketch kind of vibe going <laughs> That's on. That's what it reminded me of, like yeah. Etch-a-Sketch, like. Spirograph. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's weird. Do you remember that one on the PlayStation where the rabbit ran along the sound waves? You put your own yeah. CD in. Vib, vib ribbon. Yeah, I do actually. Yeah. yeah. I'd forgotten that. It, it kind of looks like that and it looks a bit e inky as well. More like one of your um, kind of Kindles. It reminds me of a game and watch. The display. <laughs> Looking at this, I mean, it, it is completely different to anything I've seen before. Whether or not it's something I'd actually want, and yeah, actually looking through the comments on Engadget here, the top one is, yeah, best fishing games in three, two, one. 
I imagine there's going to be a lot of that kind of stuff on there as well. Um, but for the price, I mean, you could actually buy two Nintendo DSs for the price of one of these. You may as well yeah. put a little bit, little bit towards it and get a Switch, you know. Yeah, exactly. So, so does uh, the crank power it as well? That might be cool if if you can. No, get that some would extra be good. That would be pretty cool, yeah. like those torches and stuff. Yeah, that's the first thing I thought when I saw it. I thought, well, if you can power it by cranking it, because yeah. we've all been in situations <laughs> when you know your phone runs out of battery or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you could just wind your phone up or something, that'd be quite handy. But if you want to read more about it, I'll put a link and you can check it out in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, I think it's fair to say the Sega Mega Drive had one of the best sound chips of all time, and a Rev, you're a big uh, audio guy? Yeah, I, I prefer the SID, but the Mega yeah. Drive had a banger. Well, there is actually a Spotify playlist at the moment of some cool remixes, songs that we might know from Sega games. This in particular is one of my favourites. Recognise that, Joe? Nah, no, don't say it. Don't do it. Little warm-up for the Christmas quiz. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't know it. Come on, Joe. You play this. I play this. I've played this with you. Ah. Oh. You've played this with me. Yeah. Oh, well, I ain't got a clue. One of the most famous Mega Drive games. It's a remix of Columns. Columns. Yeah, you, uh, go. you just said it. Said it. You just said it. <laughs> this is really good, As though. soon as that little bit came in, I was like, it's Columns. <laughs> well, this is a guy called uh, Mitch Murder. Um, oh, who's actually made. I know Mitch Murder. I don't actually, know him. <laughs> know of him. I know of him. Um, he's one of the guys that's done one of these remixes. I mean, there's actually a, a bunch of them here. This guy uh, from Reddit called um, Mercurious FM. He's put together a playlist of some of the best remixes of mm. Sega Mega Drive tracks that are on Spotify. So, Well, Spotify is actually quite a good resource for video game music. I, I checked quite a while ago, and there was I, I made a whole compilation list of like Alistair Brimble, Chris Holzbeck. There was a lot of people there that had actually released albums on Spotify. So... Check it out for gaming uh, soundtracks and lists. It's not the first place I'd actually go for that kind of thing, but you're right. I mean, you know, looking at that. You find as well, like, even just for, like, movie soundtracks and stuff like that, but especially game soundtracks, you go on Spotify, just type the game in or whatever, and you will literally, you won't just get the music. You'll get all the demos and everything, you know, like, all the remixes, everything. It's fantastic. Like, before you know it, you'll think, oh, I'm going to get 10 songs, but you've got 37 or something like that. Yeah, I had a list of about 50, and they were all Amiga. Yeah, so so that's just showing how niche it is, yeah. and then there's so much more that you can have Sega and stuff. Pretty good for podcasts as well, you know. Hashtag, oh yeah, hashtag yeah. just saying we're just on saying, there. Well, just like, <laughs> now while we're on that Sega vibe, um, you may have seen this news came in just a little bit too late for us to cover it last week, but they have unveiled another ten games for the Mega Drive Mini. Now it's going to be out in September. We know the release date of the Mega Drive Mini now as well. We know there's going to be forty games on there. They've now announced 30 of them. So the new ones that they have announced now, Mega Man, The Wily Wars, Street Fighter 2, Special Champion Edition. Is that different to normal Champion Edition, Special? Uh, oh, God. Now you're <laughs> testing me. It's not Christmas quiz. Um, I know I Champion know. Edition, but yeah. yeah special know, Champion Edition, apparently. <laughs> Sonic Spinball, which I, I think that game's always been a bit 50-50 with people. I really enjoyed Spinball, actually. I... I like Spinball, but I've got memories of it just being very so frustrating. Yeah. And it's only like four levels long as well, and I think they knew it was frustrating. I, I think this list kind of will be irrelevant in the future once it gets hacked and people just <laughs> shove absolutely everything on it. But I found something really interesting, which says that basically in North America you'll get a power supply. Yeah. So the rest of the world won't get power supplies, but North America will. I wonder why that is. Maybe there's some regulation or something, maybe they've got to ship with power I supplies. I noticed or... that um, yeah. somebody doing an unboxing of the, 
I think it was the SNES Mini, and they got a power supply. And I was like, I didn't get a power supply. Maybe it's a North American Maybe rule. It was a North American rule. Because yeah. yeah. when I was in America, there were guys queuing up for the PlayStation game. Where's the power oh, supply? Right. You know? yeah. I mean, come on, it only costs like, what, probably 20 pence to include, like yeah, the USB yeah. GameStop was selling their own, like, here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for $15. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's uh, ridiculous. Fantasy Star 4, Beyond Oasis, Ghouls and Ghosts on there as well. And that's another game that like used to frustrate the hell out of me, that game. It is so difficult. Um, Alex Kidd in the Enchanted Castle, Golden Axe, which yeah, has to be on there. Got to be there. Uh, Vector Man and Wonder Boy in Monster World. Um, but interesting, no columns announced yet. Is it not? No, I could do the list. That wasn't an omission, so, actually. I was quite surprised, pleasantly surprised, because I assumed it's going to be the typical, all the normal Sega games which are on every single Sega compilation game. Yeah. Um, but it's actually quite refreshing to see, like, we've got Castlevania Bloodlines on there, which is really nice. Um, Gunstar Heroes Castle and World of Illusion World of Illusion being one of my favourite games of all did, time did Mega Man The Wily Wars come out over here? it didn't come out oh, okay, there no go. so it's it's like I say it's a real breath of fresh air not to just see like Streets of Rage 1, 2 and 3 Sonic yeah. 1, 2 and 3 you know so far they've only actually announced Streets of Rage 2 so I wonder if the last 10 games are going to be the typical Golden Axe 2 and 3 Streets of yeah. Rage 1 and 3 stuff like, but, stuff like Fantasy Zone as yeah. well really yeah it's, it's pretty cool to see yeah. we've got Contra Hard Corps on there as well which I don't think came out in the UK either. I'm not too sure about that one, but I don't think that came out on PAL either. So That's one thing we've said about Sega. They do seem to take their, their retro fan base seriously, don't they? Yeah. They want to give them a good experience, I think. Um, and again, it you know, kind of shows shows Sony up, doesn't it? With, yeah. With an abysmal um, selection was on the PlayStation. So uh, I will you be getting one of these? Because I know even though you've got the originals and all, like, you do tend to go for these mini consoles. Yeah, I do, I do tend to get them. I've still not brought myself to buy a PlayStation mini yet. I... Um, recently won some uh, Argos vouchers, funny enough, and I was going to buy the PlayStation Mini and at the last second I actually ended up buying Mortal Kombat 11. Right. But I think I will <laughs> I will buy this one. Um, although, looking at it, other than Mega Man Wily Wars, I do have every other game on there, but I will still buy it. But um, you can't fit it in the palm of your hand. <laughs> we can't fit it in the palm of your hand, no. So I think I will still buy it. And plus, I think it's, what, £70 as well? Yeah. So not too hard to swallow really so yeah I haven't got any of the mini consoles but this one actually does quite appeal to me it's my Mega Drive at the moment it, it's not doing all that well it's a bit poorly sometimes I boot it up and like it doesn't work properly and then probably because I got the 32X and the Mega CD and everything all yeah, stuffed into Frankenstein's it Frankenstein's monster in the glass cabinet Dan's yeah then I've got to wobble the 32X to make the connection work and <laughs> rattling <things>. it <laughs> so yeah I might get one of these for convenience some of the games do look really good now speaking about impressive games now we've talked about the Batman group before yeah the Batman group Oh my god, they were the, one of the most stunning French graphic scene groups like I've ever seen. They did a a demo when I when I was a kid. I'd probably say it wrong. Batman Valve or Valve, okay. and it was a it was the first time I'd seen like full scale animated pixel drawn stuff by a demo group. This was just beautiful. It really was a stunning demo. And then they went on to do. One of the pinball games, I think it was Pinball Fantasies. Yeah, on the Amstrad. Yeah, yeah, and the shocking thing here is that their coding is so optimised and just so good that when they did this demo on the Amiga, it ran on a 500 and it was stunning. Now they're coming out with a game for the Amstrad and, <laughs> oh my God, this stuff looks stupid. It's basically a 16-bit game on an 8-bit system, yeah. isn't it? It looks like Outrun. 
to yeah, be fair. Yeah, it looks um, like Outrun. Now, this is a game called Vespertino. And don't know if you've got the page open, Joe, but if you scroll down, there's a little like, YouTube video in the middle. Yeah, there. I'm watching it right now, actually. They only show a really <laughs> short clip of it. So if you go, I mean, I'll put this in our show notes as well. If you kind of skip to about 1 minute 31 in there, there is a little clip of it running. And bearing in mind, this is running on an Amstrad CPC 8-bit platform. How smooth... There's that scrolling and the graphics. <laughs> 25 frames per second. Yeah. The, uh, the car selection bit, it looks like the original Need for Speed. Yeah. Like, that's how 3D. good it looks. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how the heck they've done this, but what, I mean, one thing that they keep proving over and over again is that the Amstrad CPC was a very underrated platform. Back in the day, it generally got ports of Spectrum games that weren't even improved at all, but look at this. Well, this is crazy. They're running a full 3D FX engine over the top of it. <laughs> and, you know, it's all full screen. Remember when you used to get this stuff, it would be in a small window, wouldn't it? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, even <laughs> Just like, to know, keep the frame rate. You know? The fact that they've got this full screen kind of Outrun clone running. I mean, I remember Outrun on the Amiga and the Atari ST. You know, there were dreadful ports. Didn't run anywhere near as good as this. But I'll tell you, some of the stuff we've been seeing coming out of the Amstrad scene and yeah. seen on the Amstrad recently, it's just been mind-blowing. Like, Alan Sugarman, you should have got this back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, instead of that, you know, console release, a GX. Yeah, yeah. How do you come out with something like this? You'd in, like, smashing 98? the PlayStation. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, man. So, yeah, it looks incredible. And I think, you know, Someone summed it up on Facebook, I'm speechless. And yeah, that, you know, the thing is, Batman Group would be the demo that I would show my mates to yeah. have their kind of jaws hit the floor, you know. Now, just one more thing before we get into our chat with um, Amiga Bill and Anthony this week, the Guru Meditation. Um, I don't know if you've seen this, Konami have actually released a great little compilation of some of their all-time classic arcade games. Now, the release is on Xbox One, on Switch as well, and on PlayStation 4. And I was checking this out, um, thanks to our friends at Games You Loved. Great little compilation, mainly of their um, the 80s arcade games. Now, a lot of them, I mean, you'll probably quite like this, Joe, because there's a lot of like old-school shoot-em-ups in this as well. Yeah, I was going to say, it's by the looks of things, I'd say about 80% of the games are old-school shoot-em-ups. Yeah. So if you're big on your shoot-em-ups, um, get it straight away. And then also it's got... Haunted Castle on there, which is actually a Castlevania arcade game, which yeah, is quite cool okay. uh, to see that on there. Not a good game, but it's cool to see it on there, <laughs> um, which is quite interesting. So this is already out, isn't it? Yeah, it just yeah. came out a couple of weeks ago. I mean, yeah. um, I, I downloaded it for the Switch the other day. Um, but what's interesting is Konami's actually celebrating their 50th anniversary this yeah. year. That's why the kind of... This is a first installment, the 80s one. Yeah. I imagine we're going to get more from like you know, the 90s and 2000s. They've just released the Castlevania compilation as well uh, about a week ago. Yeah. Uh, which has got about, I think, about eight Castlevania games on there, classic 8-bit and 16-bit ones, which is really cool as well because it's got quite a few of the unreleased power ones and stuff like that on it, which is pretty interesting. It's got Twin B as well. And Twin B was like epic. I remember so many ports <laughs> on different <laughs> systems of uh, Twin B. And Scramble as well. That was like a real old school one, I think. You know, it came out just after Defender. It's a bit of a Defender kind of clone, but, you know, ran really impressive. So, I mean, is it, I love the fact that you can play these arcade games on the go. It still amazes me. Mm. Even the first time I ran MAME, I was like, wow, arcades at home. <laughs> Having it on my Switch is still like, I can't believe I'm it. I'm still play. like that. <laughs> yeah, I am as well. <laughs> so, if you want to get all these, I mean, I think it's only about 15 quid. So, um, it is available now on your, your favorite modern console of choice. Right there, we will have more news on next Friday's show. And right now, time to get into this week's special guest. We are joined by the guys from The Guru Meditation. You're listening to The Retro Hour Podcast, and it is time to welcome our special guests this week. 
Now, we're going to be talking about, because I mean, obviously we're big fans of the Commodore Amiga, and I guess what we've got on this week are, uh, I was going to say YouTubers, but they're actually content creators. They do so much good stuff on Twitch, on, on YouTube as well. We're joined this week by Bill Winters and Anthony Becker, who you may know as the Guru Meditation. Welcome to the show, guys. Oh, thanks so much for having us here, guys. It's, uh, yeah. it's really an honor to be on the show. It's my favorite podcast, so it's pretty amazing to Absolutely. be on my favorite yeah. podcast. <laughs> Yeah, it's my favorite too. Great, uh, great, you guys having us on. Really appreciate that. I know, Bill, um, you, you, you often sent us pictures of your travels around the world because you work all over. And uh, I love when I get a picture of you in like, you know, Times Square or something holding up your phone with a retro logo on there. I feel like <laughs> I take you guys with me around the world. You know, sometimes <laughs> I'm on the train to New York City or in my car to New York or on a plane somewhere in the world. And uh, I always hear you guys in my ear, <laughs> especially during the turbulence. It helps me out when it's when the plane ride is so bumpy. I put you guys on. I'm like, oh, it's all right. I'm with Dan and Robbie. It's all good. <laughs> Well, there's a question that we always ask our guests, and that was, what was your first kind of gaming or computer experience? And uh, if we could start with Anthony and then go to Bill, that would be great. Uh, mine, well, I mean, as far as I did, the very first would obviously be games in the arcade, things like uh, Space Invaders, uh, Asteroids, you know, the the old games, which illustrates how old I am, which kind of scares me. Um, <laughs> but my, my first system at home was the Atari 2600, aka video computer system that wasn't a computer system what games were you playing on that oh i'm everything again <laughs> same i mean well just like the arcade you know space invaders asteroids um i loved uh i mean my favorite games on that were uh were like the superman raiders of the lost ark i loved those games i mean i still have those cartridges uh, empire strikes back by parker brothers just uh I love those games, and uh, I still have my. I mean, I still have my original Atari Twenty Six Hundred. What about you, then, Bill? Were you much of an arcade uh, goer back in the day? Oh yeah, I was a huge arcade guy back then. Still am today. I love myself a good barcade. It's one of the things I do when I travel. I find the local barcade. Uh, but my first video game experience was actually uh, at home, and it was with uh, two consoles. One was the ColecoVision or Coleco Telstar Arcade, and the other one was like this standalone Atari uh, Breakout Pong system. And those are my first two experiences. I'm so lucky because my, you know, my dad was a bit of a geek himself. He loves all the tech, so he was super supportive of of me when I was growing up. And he always purchased these items for me. So I'm very thankful for him. And he ended up purchasing purchasing uh, my Amiga for me, which we'll get into later. But these uh, these first two systems uh, were really unique and interesting. The one from Coleco really stands out. I still have it. It was like a, a triangular shaped console, and each side of the console was a game. So one side had a gun, and there was like a shooting a shooting game where you would shoot the light gun at the CRT screen. There was like this little stick figure that walked across it. The other side had a steering wheel and a stick shift, so it was a driving game. And then the third side had two paddles for a classic Pong. And of course, it was this triangular-shaped system with faux wood paneling on the side of it to match the faux wood paneling that pretty much everyone had in America in their in their basement in the in the <laughs> 60s and 70s. So. <laughs> So that was my earliest gaming memory is playing that with my dad on the on our CRT in the in the family room. Well, I was wondering how you guys actually met then. Oh, wow. Well, Anthony and I uh, met back in 1989. I think Anthony can probably even tell the story a little bit better than me, but I'll just give you the broad strokes. I was uh, running the Westchester Amiga user group, which I still run today. It's a user group that uh, is an Amiga user group that meets in Westchester County, New York, not Westchester, Pennsylvania, where most people think it is, home of Commodore. Uh, this is Westchester County, New York, which is just north of New York City. It's a suburb of New York City. And uh, I was running the Amiga group, and then you know, along came this guy, this guy named Anthony, who was, uh, <laughs> seemed like a pretty cool guy, and he was funny. I got a kick out of him, and uh, we bonded you know, over the Amiga, and we had a lot of the same interests. And, 
And yeah, we've been like best buds ever since. And uh, I wasn't old enough to drive yet, so my dad uh, would drive me to the meetings, and he would help me run the meetings. Um, and then we applied to Commodore to become an official Commodore user group, and and we did, and we got the official Commodore user group seal, and we were uh, we had bylaws and and the whole nine, and uh, the group was really strong back in the day. It was we had like 150 active members, and we also had what we called special interest groups. So on the first Thursday of every month was a general meeting, and we just talked about anything that was going on in the Amiga scene. Uh, and then we had these special interest groups that met on the second, third, and fourth Thursday of the month. So we had a music SIG for people who are into music. We had a graphics video SIG for people who are into graphics and video, a uh, game SIG. And uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty impressive. Every, every week was, was something Amiga. So yeah, and the graphics SIG met at Bill's parents' house. So that was one of my favorite, obviously. I mean, what got me into the Amiga was graphics. So that I, I hit that SIG. Um, that was my favorite one to go to. I loved it. Well, thinking here in the you know the late eighties and early nineties, the the Commodore Amiga was a very big platform here. And I remember, you know, when it got to like the early nineties, every kid at school had an Amiga five hundred, and we all played and swap games and everything. I mean, I understand the scene in America was a quite different over you know compared to over in Europe. I mean, how how did you find it over there? How did it differ? Well, the Amiga was kind of always like underground. You know, it was the alternative machine because uh, all of our parents had PCs at work. And in the schools, it was mostly PC or Mac. And then there was like this other strange thing called the Amiga, which <laughs> which all the weirdos loved. <laughs> all the artists, you know, all the artists and gamers loved the Amiga. So um, it was definitely it was definitely like third fiddle to the PC and, and the Mac. It was a little bit more underground and more specialized for people who were into uh, graphics, video and, and music. Bill is again illustrating how old I am because in school when I went, um, high school, we got our first computer lab, and it was uh, TRS-80 Model 3s and a Commodore PET 2001 in the physics teacher's classroom. That was our that was our computers before I went to college, um, where I saw my first Mac, and I saw my first Amiga when uh, when I bumped into that uh, mutual friend of ours who owned one, who had owned a 64 when I had it, and he showed me his 1000 and. And took me to Ami Expo, and then I, I had a, I had to get one. Europe was very focused on kind of games, and America seemed to be more focused on applications and creativity. Can you name some of the applications and programs that you guys were using? Oh yeah, like I said, the Amiga was really the first home computer for for artists here in the states. So some of the classic uh, programs I used to use were Deluxe Paints. It's a legendary program. It, it did a lot more than just painting because I'm not a very good painter. But it allowed me to do uh, animated titles for my videos. I also used uh, something called Digiview, which was um, it's basically a, a, an image digitizer that allowed you to, to aim a video camera at an object or, or a magazine, piece of clip art, and you could uh, scan it. It was a, a kind of a primitive scanner. Uh, I also used a program called PageStream. It was a desktop publishing program, and that's how I made the newsletters for our our user group. And those were those were the main ones that that I used: Deluxe Paint, Imagine, oh, Imagine the three D modeling and rendering program. Imagine that was another another big one. The Art Department Professional, which was in a way sort of like an an early Photoshop. It did all sorts of image manipulation. You could change an image from color to black and white, or you could crop it, resize it, change the format from an Amiga IFF file to a JPEG, vice versa. Really, really powerful program and essential for uh, for making the newsletter. 
I'll I'll go I'll go earlier than than Bill a bit because uh, one of the first programs I bought for my Amiga uh, was Turbo Silver, which uh, was Imagine before it was Imagine, um, oh, and cool. I fiddled around with that uh, for you know 3D ray tracing. Um, I, I used uh, programs like Excellence for uh, word processing. Again, the stuff that predated a lot of the desktop publishing. Um, but still, it was like amazing at the time. You, know, you come from a Commodore 64 where you were just getting the the start of this stuff with Geos, and all of a sudden you have these you know these amazing word processors and paint programs. Uh, th- those programs were just incredible at the time. I love the fact that you guys mentioned 3D rendering as well. I remember trying to do you know single frame renders in like software like Imagine or Lightwave and you'd have to leave your computer on for like two or three days. It, yeah, <laughs> like it would take that was the whole like... reason it was the whole reason I bought a Sega Genesis was so that I could still play games <laughs> while my two thousand was sitting there rendering like one one image in Turbo Silver or one landscape in Vista Pro, you know? And ray tracing seems to be the thing that everybody's talking about yeah. in PCs and the graphics cards and we were doing that all back in the days, weren't we? Oh yeah, I'll yeah. never forget one of the first uh, one of the first demos I saw on the Amiga was the uh, the Amiga Juggler, and that was all done yeah. with ray tracing, and that that was a system seller for me. When I saw the Juggler, I was like, man, that's that's what I want to do. I want to I want to create images and animations that look like that. Well, over here, I mean, we went into like any high street electronics store, like with Dixon's, Curry's, Comet, and you'd have big displays with Amiga set up, running games and everything. What about over there? I mean, what were your local dealers like? Where would you purchase your machines from and the hardware for them? We were really lucky because we had a store here in White Plains called Software Link, and it was a dedicated Commodore store. So it was also, not only did they sell the computers and the software, but it was also a meeting place. And, you know, one of the things that I always say comes with the Amiga, it's not just about the computer, it's about the community that's around that computer. So that's where we had our user group meetings. It's where you could go and, you know, check out the latest software. And while you're there hanging out, there'll be someone else coming in. And then you start talking to that person and you become friends with that person. So it was almost like a, a meeting hub of, of the Amiga community. It was a store just for, you know, Commodore and Amiga stuff. It wasn't like we had to go to like a Toys R Us or a large department store to get the Amiga. You went to this small specialty shop that had um, a community with it. Yeah, yeah, you pretty much, and, and we you say like, oh, we, it's great. We had a store here in White Plains and you think, okay, wow, it's in the big, city close to us was this store and if you looked at the business district of white plains basically where the store was was at the very edge of the business district like you had to you had to go as far as you could without hitting people's houses to to get to the store it was uh you know you had to know where it was you had to be of one of the you know one one of almost the Illuminati, you know, that you knew, you know, you got the information from someone else and he told you where this place was and to, you know, to go find it. Um, and, you know, but, but we were still so lucky because, you know, and I, I've made a friend now um, down here in Florida and, and he said basically is like, you just, you just could not get the Amiga down here. One of your videos absolutely amazed me because you keep referring to this place called Das Bunker, which <laughs> is uh, basically it's a basement, but it's full of amazing Amiga stuff. You had the original Joyboard in there, and uh, you've got some really rare items. 
just talk us through a few and how you kind of came to acquire these items. And, and I've got to ask, what, explain what the joy board is for people who might not know. <laughs> yeah, it, does, it, sounds, it sounds like we should be doing a different, uh, <laughs> different talk than Amigas. <laughs> uh, well, joy board was one of the two things. One of, my, one of my favorite joysticks, when I had the Atari 2600, I, you know, obviously generally you, you would invariably always break the crummy Atari joystick. And then you would go to your local store and search for a replacement. And I picked up this little tiny joystick uh, called the Power Stick. And I used that with the 2600. I used it with my Commodore 64. I used it with my Amiga. And it, it was probably it was when I already had my second Amiga because I bought a 500 myself. And then I got a 2000 on a student, uh, uh, student discount plan from Commodore. And... One day I'm I'm sitting waiting for a game to load, you know, floppy disks and all that, and I I'm just turning the joystick over and I see it says Amiga Corporation on the back, and I'm like, that's weird, like Amiga Corporation, uh, like, and I'm using it on an Amiga. That's really interesting, but the logo's different, the company name looks different. Like, ah, okay, this is this is interesting. I wonder if it's the same company. It turns out it is because it's what. Um, Amiga Corporation did while they were producing, uh, while they were developing the Amiga, was to sell joysticks, controllers, and uh, and some games for the Atari 2600 because it was super popular at the time, and it was a way they could both make some income as well as hide what the company was doing because it looked like just another oh look they make things for that little cartridge system over there and they're not they're no one to worry about and uh one of the other things they made was the joy board that that leads us to dust bunker because what basically happened was of course i was obviously a commodore person an amiga person when when they were popular and then when commodore went bankrupt and went out of business and people started getting rid of stuff and you know atari 2600s were old um you know i would I would pop on eBay. I would pop on news groups every now and then and just see what uh, see what people were getting rid of for like not much money, stuff that I couldn't afford. I mean, I you know, you'd go to an AMI Expo, you'd see a video card. It would be like $1,000. DMI Resolver, those Texas Instruments-based graphics cards, they were thousands of dollars. It's like this is more than my computer cost. There's no, this is awesome, but there's no way I could afford it. Now you see one up on eBay for – twenty thirty dollars and you're like huh i have a job now i and twenty thirty dollars is a drop in the bucket i'll pick it up and i i ended up uh i think i had about seven amiga 1000s wow <laughs> you can never have too many <laughs> that uh i think I, I i don't think i bought seven i i think they reproduced in my basement <laughs> i think it got to a point it's like a nuclear reactor where it was you know, I reached a critical mass of Amiga and Commodore equipment where it would just create uh, <laughs> new Amiga and Commodore equipment. Were you feeding them after midnight? How do you know if you are or not? Because it's always, I mean, it's always after midnight, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, at before we started talking, I mean, you, you had your camera on for a moment and I actually thought you, uh, your background was CGI because you had that much stuff there. It looked amazing. I mean, <laughs> talk us through some of the stuff you've got because I know actually watching your videos, You've actually got this system called a a Commodore sixty five. Yeah, tell us about the sixty five and how you got this. Uh, how I got this is I actually still even I actually still even have the receipt for my Commodore. I'm probably one of the few people in the world that actually has a receipt for their Commodore sixty five. 
I was on a service called Genie. It was a lot like CompuServe, AOL, um, uh, with you, you know, basically in the days uh, on my 2000, Commodore had gone out of business. Um, in the liquidation of Commodore, every now and then you'd see ads in a magazine where, like, these companies like Protecto, Liage would be getting rid of stuff. And one day I see these ads for uh, basically it's the motherboard, the keyboard um, for the Commodore 65. So I pick each one up. I think it was like $70 total for a keyboard and a motherboard. And I figure that's, I mean, with a 64, that's all you need. That is a Commodore 64. And and while I'm on Genie one one day, I I uh, what would happen is every now and then we get bored. And there was an Amiga section and a Commodore 64 section. And um, when we're bored, we would decide to raid the Commodore 64. It would be like kind of like a raid in Twitch now where you basically take everyone from the channel and you go over to the other channel. You all just start suddenly saying things and, and then you all suddenly leave. It's, it's kind of, uh, you know, what what computer nerds do to thrill themselves and i was over there and i started chatting with some of the cmd people and i was just asking questions like uh you know i'm always interested in, in hooking a floppy drive up to it and i understand it's a 1581 and i'm just wondering if anyone knows like the pinout of the of the floppy port and they're like oh we have uh you know we have some commodore 65s in the back we'll sell you one for 40 bucks so i bought a commodore 65 for 40 dollars from cmd i have a receipt and everything and uh when i got it it was supposed to not be working and i everything i buy that doesn't work the first thing i do is plug it in and turn it on because i figure i can't hurt it (laughs) and i turned it on it worked fine and yeah it's uh it's it's crazy and you buy it because you think it's well it's forty dollars it's a curiosity forty dollars is not a bad price for something that's worth nothing computer that never came out the Commodore 65, I mean, for people that might not be familiar with it, this was a probably Commodore's last 8-bit machine. It was a, a prototype they made in the early 90s. It was meant to be a successor to the Commodore 64. Never got released. And I think the last one I saw on eBay went for something like about £2,000 over here, well, I think. Actually, actually, it was a successor to the 128. Yeah. Um, and it was in development, you know, and, and as, as I've spoken to a few Commodore engineers, they always scratch their head and like, I don't know why Commodore was even looking at this thing. You had Amiga already. It was a dead end. But um, that was the and, and it's it's amazing how completed it was. And I just I, honestly, I think it's it's one of the most beautiful Commodore 8-bit machines, just the casework, the look of it, how they integrated the floppy drive. Uh, I, I think it was a pretty awesome machine. Uh, it was kind of too bad it was never finished. I mean, 256 colors. It was basically a bit more capable than the 500 because um, it, c- it could even display four- out of a palette of 4,096 colors, um, 256 colors. But obviously, it would never, it would never be able to attain like the speeds. There was no upgrade path to it um that, that you have with with like a uh, with like the amigas so it really it was like a dead end machine but it was amazingly complete um like it it seemed really close to release i mean one of the big um you know one of the big issues the 65 had was that the the 64 emulation being more like in software was never really finished hmm. so it wasn't very 64 compatible not like the 128 now 
back in the days, probably for our listeners, you know, nowadays you can just go on to Final Cut or you can go on to Premiere and just drop in a sequence, edit your video straight away. Back in the days, we used to have two huge video decks. <laughs> you'd have your Amiga, all of the inputs coming in, and then you'd have a master output and you'd have to kind of live mix it and cut between this video toaster stuff. Did you guys ever kind of get to use video toasters? Because we never had them because they were PAL. Uh, they were NTSC, and we could never actually run the PAL versions here. Uh, I don't think they ever actually released a PAL version. Yeah, the video toaster was basically the, the holy grail of add-ons for the Amiga here here in the States. Um, yes, and we, we did get our hands on them. We never owned one, but uh, we actually had an alpha version of the video toaster at our December 1990 Westchester Amiga user group meeting. Uh, we had our friend uh, Rick, who worked for MTV, he was a beta tester for New Tech. And he brought in uh, a toaster system along with our friend Rob, and they they demoed it for us. And it was it was like that. It was one of those moments in in time that you'll you'll never forget. The first time we saw this this Amiga doing live video switching, uh, we just we were just everyone was just floored. Uh, my friend Al was an editor for ABC at the time, and I'll just never forget the look on his face. He was just looking at the toaster, saying, you know, we have. We have $120,000 switcher at ABC Studios, and it can't do half the things that I'm seeing this video toaster and Amiga do. It was it was absolutely breathtaking and stunning. <laughs> and I think here in the States, I would say the toaster is, is sort of what defined the Amiga. Like, And I didn't really realize that until, until now, because I, I work in the television business now, and then when I tell people about my hobby, you know, I love vintage computers and Amigas, when they hear Amiga, they, they go, oh, Amiga? Oh, isn't that the video toaster? So um, it's no, obviously it's not, but they're so they're so closely knit and so closely related. When people hear Amiga, they immediately think video toaster here in the states. And yeah, it was it was a live video switcher, and it also did uh, compositing, and it had an amazing amazing 3D modeling program called Lightwave 3D, which is still around today. And New Tech, the company, is also still around today. Um, but it was a lot of people think the toaster was an editor, and it was really just a switcher. They did come out with a nonlinear editing system that worked with the toaster and it's called the video flyer and i remember reading at the time that you know tv shows like babylon 5 were made using the video toaster and Lightwave, and you know the effects in those look stunning for the time right sequest yeah. dsv also i think was made yeah. with Lightwave. yep they all started out on Lightwave, and uh you know if you you go into like any public access channel here in the united states in the early 90s and chances are they had they had a video toaster there and uh, they also they used them for um for, for the, the channel preview guides at the, our local cable channels. So every now and then you'd go turn on your TV and you would see a guru meditation pop up on the screen because the, <laughs> cause the toaster had crashed. It was, it was well, awesome. <laughs> and, that, and that's the other cool thing is there's actually people on the internet trying to like resurrect the old preview system to something where you could use the software and like load your cable company's TV schedule and and basically have it run on your Amiga or an emulated Amiga on the, the old preview software. That's awesome. Uh, I know that, Bill, you're a professional sim- cinematographer now and uh, you, you do lots of filming. And uh, I wonder how much of the Amiga actually is part of that, getting you into that position. The Amiga is key to getting me where I am now in my career. Uh, like I said, my dad's always been super supportive and he teaches communications. He teaches television and radio production. So growing up as a kid, I always had a video camera in the house, starting out with an old three quarter inch system and then a VHS system. 
and so I was just shooting video all the time since that since I was a little kid in the late 70s. But then when the when the Amiga came out, it really it took it to a whole nother level. I I hooked up a, a Genlock. I had a Rock Gen for my Amiga, which allowed me to to make titles for my videos. I would hook up two VCRs and and do uh, linear. <laughs> Uh, analog video editing, VCR to VCR, and I would use the Amiga for all the special effects. Uh, I would use it for all my titles. Um, I would render 3D animations with it. I would do. Uh, I also had a chroma key for it, so I used the Amiga to uh, to express myself creatively and to to help make my videos. And um, when I submitted a portfolio to film school, some of the stuff on in that portfolio I made on the Amiga. <laughs> so it, it played a really big role in uh, in shaping my cinematography career. And now, you know, when I first got into the, the business, we were shooting on, on film. Uh, but now we all, most of us just shoot on, on digital cameras, which are essentially computers uh, with lenses on them. So all of my background uh, with the Amiga and Genlocks and my technical computer background has really come into play now because, like I said, the cameras are basically computers with lenses on them. So you need to have a lot of artistic sensibility you need to be able to tell a story and, and light, but then you also need to have a lot of technical knowledge and skill to actually run the, the cameras these days. And you've worked with some very big clients as well, Bill. Yeah, I've been lucky. I've been I've had a, a pretty a pretty good run here. <laughs> um, I, I some things that you guys might know. Um, I started the show Kimmy's and Cars Getting Coffee with Jerry Seinfeld. Um, I've done I've done work. I did uh, Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids. That's on on Netflix. A lot a lot of Netflix stuff. Um, and uh, a lot of a lot of television promos. I uh, just shot the opening to the Major League Baseball playoffs. That was, was really really successful. It just won some Emmy awards. Um, I've been super lucky to have the amazing career that that I've had. It's literally taken me all around the world. I've been to pretty much every continent now except Antarctica, and I've gotten to to experience the world through this amazing career of mine. And you know, I've shot the the launch video for like the iPhone three back in the day. So I've done a lot of a lot of work for Apple. I've done a lot of work for for um, some work for Google, Samsung, a lot of the big tech companies, uh, as well as you know other companies like Nike and Volkswagen, a lot of Volkswagen stuff, Heineken. So it's been it's been an awesome awesome ride. Well, one movie that you were involved with recently, um, I know you guys were involved with their Viva Amiga, and we had um, we had Zach on the show, and that was a great you know um, tribute to the Amiga. And it's been quite a few of those movies recently. But how did you go about getting involved in that? And did you um, get all your old collection out? And I know there's some beautiful cinematography in that with dramatic lighting and everything as Ray, well. Raid Das Bunker. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we uh, we definitely raided Das Bunker, and Bill Bill's actually the one. Uh, and I believe, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, he could, he can speak a lot more to it. it. Was it was from, you know, us when we go to to Vintage Computer Festival. Bill brings his camera. It's it's always a big deal, and you know the guys there are always you know very interested in cameras. And I think it was kind of through that maybe, but I know one day Bill calls me up, and of course you know where are you going to look for Amiga stuff? Zach wanted you know just some. Uh, what what Bill calls B-roll, as if I would know what the hell that is, um, of like distressed old thrown out Amiga equipment. And I'm like, well, shoot, I can raid Dust Bunker. I'm sure I can find some stuff in bad shape. So we found like the most yellowed Amiga 1000 keyboard (laughs) we could grab. Um, I had like an empty Amiga 1000 case. Just basically all the distressed odds and ends, little bits stuff that looked broken, missing, you know, covers. And we, we basically, you know, went and, and grabbed some shots at an old abandoned, uh, strip mall. And, uh, and then, 
you know, you know, and then again, getting a call from Bill, it's like, all right, now he wants to do some like studio shots of, you know, some equipment. So again, it's like, okay, raid dust bunker, get like the best looking Amiga 1000 I have. And, and, you know, a whole bunch of other machines, which we brought to, to Bill's dad's uh, TV studio um, where he teaches and, and Zach, you know, we basically spent a whole day with, with Zach and, you know, him, you know, getting shots that, and then, so, so when I watched that movie, I'm like, oh, that's mellow yellow, the, the yellow keyboard. And that's my 1000. And that's, uh, <laughs> there's a, you know, it's like awesome to watch that video and know that like you'll set your equipment's in there. Yeah. So, um, you know, being a filmmaker, I'm always looking for a subject to, to make something about. And of course, you know, the Amiga was one of the first things that came to mind. I said, you know, I wonder, I wonder if anyone's ever made a documentary about, about the Amiga. So I just started Googling, you know, Amiga, Commodore Amiga documentary, and, you know, up popped uh, Zach's Viva Amiga Kickstarter. And the Kickstarter had ended, and I was like, oh, man, you know, I probably probably missed the boat on this one, but I'm going to reach out to this guy, Zach, and and see, you know, if he needs any help or just, you know, make contact with him. He's a filmmaker as well, and he likes the Amiga, so, you know, maybe, maybe we'll hit it off. So I uh, sent the message to Zach, and then, like, an hour later, he writes back, and he's like, He's like, dude, I, I actually haven't finished the film yet, and uh, I need help in the in the final the final stretch. Uh, we need to shoot the the scene, you know, the end of the Amiga scene, <laughs> the sad the sad Amiga scene. And he's like, and I could really use some help. So I was like, oh, perfect, you know, I'd love to be a little part of this documentary. So like Anthony said, I uh, there was this old abandoned shopping mall that I used to drive by all the time, and I was like, man, this would just be a really cool location to shoot something. And I, whenever I see a cool location, I would just put it in the back of my head and store it away for future for a future shoot so i was like i know i got the perfect spot you know we'll get some some anthony's old amigas and we'll put them in this old abandoned shopping mall and it'll look like you know <laughs> the early 90s when when the amiga came the commodore came crashing down uh so yeah so we went and we shot that for zach and we did the studio shoot with some of anthony's good looking amigas and then you know, zach has just become a really good friend of mine and uh, and we said, you know, this is great. I'm so glad that I was able to be a part of Viva Amiga, you know, towards the end. But we want to do something from the beginning together that we can really like sink our teeth in and and take the project from start to finish. So now Zach and I are working on a film called Arcadia, which is a history of arcades. Uh, Zach is directing it, and I'm shooting it for him. And yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a long-term project because uh, it's quite quite a massive subject to tackle. <laughs> but uh, we've already done a bunch of shooting for it, and it, they've come out great. And it's just been it's been awesome going into some of these old arcades and uh, spending spending time with Zach. He's yeah, become we, a really good friend had, of mine. Uh, Zach on talking about Arcadia actually and telling I us know. about some of the amazing machines. Well, one thing that we mainly know you and Anthony for is the Guru Meditation, which is your amazing YouTube channel. And I, one of the videos that I absolutely love is where Anthony's doing a talk on the Amiga 4000 <laughs> and then the kind of original designers walk in as you're dissing the Amiga 4000. Um, what was well, it like kind that's of meeting the devs? me around forever. It's, it's, it was interesting because we... I, I would always, whenever at Vintage Computer Festival, they would have um, some Commodore engineers because a lot of the engineers, or at least a you know decent number of them, still kind of live in that area. They're around, so you know you'll go to this computer festival. You might see Dave Haney there. You might see Bill Hurd there. They had uh, so they basically did a bunch of years. They did each sort of era of Commodore. They had. Um, Chuck Peddle was supposed to be there, but he had to be on Skype because he had to go back uh, to, I believe it was Sri Lanka he was in for a, a business of his. Um, and then the next 
time around they had like a whole panel of uh, um you know some some of the other talks and the they had um yeah the the second one i think was bill hurd and then they had um dave haney and the amiga year so it's like you've already seen these people and so it's not a it's not a surprise to see bill hurd around and you know at this point you pretty much recognize him you're always saying hello and um i knew he was involved in 8-bit generation and he was doing the showing of 8-bit generation was in a tent right outside that room that i was in doing a uh, just a just a little informational talk of you got yourself an amiga and you know you're you're trying to figure out like what might be wrong with it what are some resources you could look at to try to to diagnose maybe what's wrong with that machine you pulled out of your closet after a long time and it won't turn on or you know so i went through a whole lot of resources that i found on the internet and i think the second i hit um some information of that if the audio in your 4000 stops working it's cuz the this capacitor was installed backwards um to, to look at that capacitor because that causes that capacitor apparently to fail um, much sooner than it really should. And Bill disappeared like that moment. Just And I'm like, okay, he's doing a screening across the way. That's nothing un, unheard of until a little later. He's back in the room and, you know, he's, he speaks up. And I'd, I'd actually seen Greg Berlin. I did not recognize him. And he's actually in... Anyone who watches the deathbed visual video, he's the guy sitting on the floor pulling RAM chips out of a tower machine to take them home. He's, he said, I'm finally you know, taking something. I'm taking some RAM chips. Um, I had seen him looking over some of my machines while I was setting up, and he had actually said he had worked at Commodore. And you know, we, we didn't speak much. We just spoke a little because then I guess he probably went across to that tent. And yeah, when he when he spoke, basically, I, I love the fact that he simply the first thing he said was, "Well, he's he's wrong." <laughs> <laughs> and you're and not, not going to argue with him, are you? <laughs> well, you know, and I, I I always tell people about something that happened later. Is now, I mean, this is an, an amazing thing to me. Is you got the guy who designed the machine. He's looking in my four thousand to find his initials, um, silk screened on the motherboard. And then he's he's trying to figure out what might be wrong with it. And he reaches in the 4000 and he starts with the machine on just pushing down with his finger on the center of the motherboard, flexing it. And and my first reaction is like, I, like I'm ready to tell this person, get what the hell are you doing? Get away from my machine. <laughs> be careful. And I, and I stopped up short. First, first of all, he's so much taller than me. And it was <laughs> the first thing when, you know, when when Bill Hurd said he was the, the designer was you got this tall guy standing there, and I was looking for the first window to jump out of <laughs> to get out of the room. Uh, and and it's also it's the guy who I mean, how many of these machines he touched in his career? Who am I to tell him don't push on the motherboard with your finger? <laughs> but it's your four thousand. <laughs> oh yeah, well I, I still controlled myself because I wasn't about to bat his hand away. Well, there's another incredible video um, that Ravi and I both loved on your channel, and that was um, when you went to see um, the the artist in New York, a lady who's 83 years old, Samia Halaby, and she's um, she's an artist who uses the Amiga in her work. So how did you meet up with her? And tell us a bit about her then for people that may not have seen the video. Well, yeah, it's, it's a pretty incredible story. Um, Samia and I have a, a mutual friend who we, who we met 
And uh, this mutual friend, uh, she's very much in the art community and she's very much into Amiga. She's into uh, electronic music. And uh, she was making an album and uh, using the Amiga and she needed an Amiga uh, for, <laughs> she always heard of the Amiga and she always wanted to make uh, some electronic music with the Amiga. And she had an idea to make this this album and she was looking for someone who had an Amiga that she could borrow. Um, so I, I met up with her and Anthony had a spare Amiga 600. There might be one in Dust Bunk or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Anthony uh, loaned, loaned this, this woman, Sana, his, her, his Amiga 600 and she took it and made this really cool album with it. Um, and she introduced me to uh, this woman named Samia Halby. And she said, "This um, I have this friend named Samia. She's you know a world-renowned painter, and she did some artwork on the Amiga, and she wants to uh, preserve them because all of her work is on floppy disks. So I was like, oh, no problem. You're like Anthony and I know how to do that. We'll go. We'll go down and create some ADF files for her. And I was doing a little bit of research on Samia because I d- I didn't know anything about her. Um, and it, yeah, it turns out she is. She's a, a world-renowned painter, and uh, and she does this incredible artwork on the Amiga. So I was like, you know what, this." This woman sounds really interesting. Like maybe I should bring the video camera. <laughs> so I was like, let's go down. We'll rescue her discs, and I'll I'll bring yeah. the video camera, and we'll we'll do a, a little shoot with her if she's up for it. Yeah, he brought the video camera. I bought the brought the twelve hundred and the PCMCIA CF adapter card. <laughs> and wow, and we had no idea what we were getting into. Uh, Sammy is, is, is one. All. Yeah, she is just one of the most incredible people I've ever met in my life. She's also become like a very close friend of mine. Uh, she she's basically still has her Amiga 1000, you know, set up in her studio still. down in in Tribeca. And what what it is is she back when she was 50 years old in 1985 when the Amiga came out, she was looking for you know uh, a new a new art form, a new way to express herself. So she bought this Amiga 1000, and she she didn't want to use a program like Deluxe Paint because she's like I already do actual paintings. I'm not looking to just do a digital version of it. She's like, I want this machine to actually create the art for me. So she learned and it, the machine would be part of the art itself. So she taught herself uh, how to code in basic and then later C++. And she she basically programs these pieces of art that are, are it's basically like the demo scene. <laughs> yeah. She makes all, the, all these algorithms that uh, that make all these incredible patterns on the screen and it looks like uh it looks like something out of the demo scene and what she does is she she takes different variables and plugs them into her algorithms to make different patterns on the screen and she assigns uh, these numbers to different macro keys on the keyboard and she has uh, another artist named kevin nathaniel play along with her he plays all this world music and as she as he's playing the music she changes the images on the screen and then while uh, she's changing images on the screen. He alters the music, and it's something called kinetic painting that they do, and it's it's really a sight to behold. Um, so so we started. I started. I uh, brought the camera. I started uh, asking Sammy questions about her artwork and about her involvement in the Amiga. And yeah, and it's it's up on YouTube. It's called "81 uh, Year Old Artist <laughs> Creates Art with Her Amiga." I, about a few months back, she actually did a whole presentation at the Guggenheim Museum here in Manhattan, which is a very prestigious museum. Uh, she did a retrospective of her her painting and her work with the Amiga. And just last week, she did a performance of the Kinetic Painting um, at a auditorium here in Manhattan as well. And she her uh, her Amiga juices are flowing. And someone had seen the video, a gentleman named Roberto Rogol. And he's like, you know what? This this woman needs an Amiga 1200. She needs to upgrade from the 1000. <laughs> so he actually sent her an Amiga 1200. And uh, we're in the process of getting the 1200 set up for Samia so she can um, 
so she can use a, a 1200 and do some AGA graphics and bring the 1200 with her uh, as she does her kinetic paintings uh, around the city. That's awesome. And I, one subject that you covered on your channel, which I think is a very kind of, it's the question that everybody asks about Amiga. And you went off to an Amiga Polish event, Ami Party, and uh, there was David Pleasance, the former uh, managing director of uh, Commodore UK, and Trevor Dickinson. And they, they did a talk on... Um, why the Amiga failed, why Commodore failed, actually. And that was really interesting. Were you pretty shocked to hear about the kind of incompetencies of Commodore? No, we uh, lived it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, we, we would always sit there. And I remember a lot of times just t having talks in the users group about, like, why don't we see ads on TV? Like, we know how amazing this machine is. We're, we're, we're meeting once a month and sometimes more than once. Uh, you know, we're using it every day. I mean, why why does no one else know about this? Why are people like people are exalting this Mac, which is like black and white single task, like just pathetic if you used an Amiga, like like why is this not and to have any traction? You know, and then you see the video toaster come out and you're like, Oh yeah, finally we'll we'll see something and it's like still nothing. And then it, it kind of, you start hearing like the rumors that Commodore is in trouble. Well, it's not like that big a surprise. You're kind of like hope that someone will buy them. And, you know, it, it just, like I said, hearing them, it just, it, it's nice to, it, I almost kind of, I hate to use the term because it's so overused, closure. But you, you kind of get this little bit of closure, like, oh, wait, yes, that's that's exactly what I thought the problem was. <laughs> I'm glad I finally, I know I was right. <laughs> well, for the final question, I was kind of wondering, you know, it's it's been 30 years since you set up that Amiga group, and it still seems like it's going strong. I was wondering what you guys think of the Amiga scene at the moment, and what keeps you interested in it? What keeps us interested in it is, what keeps me interested in it is, I think it's because it was... Like, it was a computer from a simpler time, but it was also the first real computer. Like, there were times, like Commodore 64, I like it, it's like a Nintendo. You would turn it on, you'd throw a disc in, you load up the game you're going to play. Then you shut it off, you turn it on, you load up the next thing you were going to play. Or the word processor or whatever. Now you had a computer that, there were times, I, I mean, I turned on my Amiga, was not even to play any game, not to type a letter, not to do any of this stuff. It was... Just to, to fiddle around with the startup sequence. Maybe I can, you know, how can I get this to work a little better? Oh, there's a new JPEG decoder. Let me throw it on there. You know, once you have a hard drive, this was a computer you could use just just to be a computer. To me, I thought that was that was amazing looking back at it. Now you you do this stuff every day on a on like a Windows machine, you know, where you might load some new updates and things, but but back then, it was unheard of to do stuff like that. So it's just a such an amazing thing, like a almost like a an eye opener, that a computer itself could be something that you would use just to be a computer. And and I loved that, and and that's why I I basically never left it really. The Amiga scene today is absolutely booming. <laughs> I mean, it is it is incredible. Uh, you know, yesterday uh, did a Twitch stream, and it was the the premiere of a brand new Amiga game called Reshooter, and it was yeah, the, 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 <laughs> the excitement for this game was just like off the charts. There were like, hundreds of people watching, and we had, we had an absolute blast. And but that was just like one one 
piece of the puzzle. You know, like there's there's the renewed interest in Amiga. I think Amiga and retro is is, is in right now. There's a, a huge renewal of interest in it. Um, so basically, the user group is a reflection of that. You know, back in the heyday when Amiga was cutting edge, obviously it was. The, the best time uh, for the user group. We had about 150 active members. And then after Commodore failed and, you know, PC took over, um, the numbers dropped dramatically. You know, in, in the early 2000s, uh, we basically got four people <laughs> at our meetings. You know, we never stopped meeting, you know, but it was basically like Anthony, I, and a couple other guys. And now the, the meetings are getting popular again. We have 30 active members. You know, we get anywhere between like 15 and 20 people at our monthly meetings, and we meet every month. And um, it's it's amazing to see. But now the, the difference now is is the internet. You know, back then the way you could connect with other Amiga users is by going to the user group, and that's that was about it. I mean, sure, in magazines, some, yeah, and magazines. Yep. But now with oh, the yep. internet and and YouTube and Twitch and social media and all the online forums, it, the Amiga community is is now connected. So now we are connected to Europe. Uh, we are we understand what's going on in Europe. We you know I've made amazing friends who are uh, from the Amiga scene in Europe. I would go to Ami Party and I'd visit those guys. <laughs> They're incredible. And uh, things like YouTube and Twitch have just brought the Amiga community together. And there's just so many like exciting things happening in the community now. There's, I feel like uh, there, like every week there's a new game coming out. Uh, there's the, you know, like guys like the Vintage Computer Society in Athens are making like new joysticks for the Amiga. Then you got guys uh, like, you know, like uh, John uh, Chucky Hurtel who's like, you know, making new motherboards for the Amiga and, you know, guys making new accelerator cards for the Amiga. Like, there's just so much happening right now. It feels like it's like 1990 all over again. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely <laughs> incredible. You know, speak of the hardware, I mean, I just purchased a brand new 2 meg internal RAM upgrade with battery back clock for my 500. Well, like, would you ever think we're nearing 2020? Like buying a brand new board for an Amiga 500 is it's insane. It's it's wonderful. And long and may it continue. Creative mind. Yeah. <laughs> well, you look, the Amiga scene's incredible now, guys. And you, you guys have done you know so much for it, documenting it and covering it as well. I mean, if people haven't checked out your channel, the Guru Meditation, and your uh, your Twitch channel as well, Bill, I'll put a link in our show notes this week. You know, Ravi and I have been lifelong fans of the Amiga. We could nerd out with you guys for another ten hours easily. But you know, we, we've really enjoyed having you on the podcast this week. Thank you so much for coming on. The honor was ours, guys. Thanks so much. Oh, and you guys, you guys, yeah. uh, you guys are partially responsible for the Guru Meditation because when I saw your YouTube channels originally, I was like, wow. There's people who are interested in the Amiga on YouTube, and these guys are really cool. Maybe we should put some more videos up there too. So thank you guys. Oh, amazing. Yeah, to, to be hundred percent honest, I would say you're the the second podcast that I've ever like religiously listened to. Just like the second I heard it, I was like, yeah, this is this is such quality. It's just one of the best. Really appreciate that, guys. It really means a lot. Oh, fine praise indeed. Thank yeah, you so absolutely. Much.